0: Welcome to the premium property podcast. Today we have Matt from Signature Wales on the podcast. He's a quantity surveyor and a refurb consultant from Wales. Obviously you can tell by the name Signature Wales. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Cheers both, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on, thanks for (laughs) coming on. So tell us a bit about yourself and your background before property. So I start at the beginning.
1: I left school at 17. I was studying my AS levels didn't really have any kind of goal on where I wanted to be what I wanted to do but being in school it was kind of the natural progression onto AS level ended up doing that for a year and was pretty much asked to leave school it's um my attendance wasn't great because I wasn't going to um study lessons so then as I wasn't really progressing with that they said look you're making the school look bad so they didn't want me there anymore after that so it was on to, to new things, really. So I decided to get to the job centre and see what was out there. And I ended up finding a course in college, which was starting, about a diploma in construction. And it covered different aspects, such as architecture, surveying, building surveying, and other construction elements. And I thought, well, because I didn't really know where I wanted to be, that was probably the best start for me, to try and find something to cover anything. So I went up there. I've done two years in the in the college, which was great. Um, pretty much gave me a basic understanding of each kind of trade. And it was from there I thought, well, quantity surveying's the kind of thing I'd like to get into. Always enjoyed maths and the like. So I thought, well, yeah, let's give this a go. So, yeah, it was from there then. I ended up going on to university to study quantity surveying. And then it was probably halfway through my time studying this that I managed to get a job. So the surveying course only one day then led on to this and yeah it was from there then i started working for a roofing contractor so training eqs there uh, working on new build developments and general roofing works Uh, with the new build there was 16 plots being built so it kind of gave me a basic overview of you know construction which is great to get into alongside the roofing but things didn't go particularly great at that company i was started i think in the september by the following september they had gone out of business so that wasn't great. So I was on to the next company then who were a fit-out contractor and I think they lasted six months before they went into liquidation. So that wasn't really, uh wasn't great. So yeah, when I graduated from university in 2013, I decided to set up my own company with two other people. We'd done this for four years. We were doing general construction work, um, roofing, external wall installation, general fit-outs and yeah, just hit a point after about four years we all thought we wanted the company to go in different ways. So we ended up walking away from that. And uh, I was working for tier one contractors then doing works on uh, Cardiff council. I'd done a lot of refurb work on there for them, taking void properties and then turning them in back out so they could be rented. I've uh, done a new build and regeneration scheme, which I think was worth 8.2 million. And then yeah, done some major fit outs on some government buildings as well then over that time. So it's been a busy couple of years.
0: Yeah definitely it sounds like you've got a great background there and you've sort of been in property your whole career really. Yeah. Yeah yeah. So obviously there you said that you worked for two businesses the fit out contractors and the roofing contractors that both went into liquidation so what would you say were the Lessons that you learnt from seeing two businesses go into liquidation.
1: Probably the biggest thing was cash flow issues within the company. Winning work never really seemed to be an issue with either the companies I was at. They always had stuff on, but having cash flow and managing that is something which I think in every industry you'll notice know, is a challenge. You know, it was seemed to be happening every month. They would, they wouldn't have money to pay the suppliers, which would then lead on. And then, you know, even though they're making good good margin, if they're not getting paid for 45 days after the month end, it's always going to drive companies close to closure. And it just made it really difficult then. And yeah, you know what, it's like suppliers can last so long without receiving their money, but if they get edgy, they pull the plug pretty much and yeah, ruin, destroys the companies then. Honestly was massive when you're speaking to subcontractor, uh, to suppliers, just make sure they're aware of what's going on. So... If you haven't got the full amount, what I was finding, instead of saying, them look, we've, say, got a thousand pound being split between four of you, with someone expecting 700. If you're honest and say, look, you're only getting this much, they're normally more happy to receive something and understand what's happening than not giving the full picture. So I think that's a lesson for anyone in any kind of property. Even if you're doing like a fit out refurb of a house, just say, you know, be honest with the people, it'll make a massive difference
0: yeah definitely it's just about not trying to overpromise and cover up anything because eventually it will just sort of get uncovered anyway i guess definitely yes
2: yeah so with the um the lessons you learned from the two businesses that failed how have you put those into practice with your own business
1: yeah definitely i'd say learning from someone else's failures is a lot better than learning from your own. You know, if you're taking what's happened to them and thinking, well, right, there's two kind of ways you can look at it. You can either think, well, that'll never happen to me and be overconfident, or you can think, well, no, you know, I'm gonna be my own person. They've made this mistake. I have gotta make sure I don't make that mistake. And then the biggest thing I found as well was being hands on, you know, not necessarily doing the works, but having a good understanding with the previous companies there was often times where stuff was neglected and then what you find is when it's neglected that's when the issues happen or if there's an issue being hands-on again it resolved sometimes we all have tasks we don't really want to do leave them to the backburn and they never get sorted if you hit them head-on once they are done they're sorted and you just find that you can move on in a better direction really no it's not always going to be the right you know be the best thing for the business but sometimes you got to sort these things out early rather than leaving it turn into a mountain
2: yeah exactly so it's good to just really learn from people's mistakes i suppose so um you touched upon doing things that you don't particularly enjoy what when you first started the business was there anything that you did that you didn't really enjoy too much
1: yeah i think that within life there's always things which you don't want to do and i believe that it's doing these which helps you onto another platform really Get them done straight on for me personally i've never really enjoyed managing jobs i'm always happy doing the cost side of things making sure the money's in the money's out i enjoy that but actually project managing jobs is not my favorite thing but you know you need to do these otherwise things can run wild you know even from a cost element you don't manage the boys who are on site you could end up costing you x x amount extra you know so you need to really be hands-on and sometimes yes like i said hitting these things head-on will always just resolve the issues
0: yeah definitely so in terms of project management there you spoke about you not liking it is there any sort of tips or specific apps that you use to help you with your project management
1: uh in terms of apps no i'm a bit more old school, everything, my life is pretty much on Excel. Everything's planned out, so within the day, I got to do lists on there, everything else. Scope of work, so with any job, say I'll have a scope which the boys need to stick to, and then I just manage everything off Excel. It's it's a bit bit old school, I imagine there's an app out there which can probably save me half a day really, but yeah, it's just uh, never quite got onto that.
0: Yeah, I guess it's what works for you though, essentially. Yeah. 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 Yeah, And I think that's the thing it was kind of
1: brought up on Excel and, you know, in my thirties now, it just seems like I've been stuck in that, that kind of mold.
0: Yeah. So if you, have you ever had it where a project has been delayed? And if so, how have you sort of managed that with the, cause obviously you have different trades coming in once one part of the refurb's completed. How have you sort of managed that?
1: Yes, what I've always found is any kind of issues on any site where there is delays nearly always seems to come from the start of the job. So you find that if something's not organized on day one, that's where your issues tend to come from. So for instance, if drawings are not correct, then you don't address it at the start and then it just builds and builds and then you have these kind of issues and then you have the issues with, say, trades then, so you're waiting for the plasters to come in, but the decorators are supposed to be in the same time. It's communication skills, just making sure that everyone's on top. For example, any kind of refurbs, whether it's a house refurb or a fit out on a school or something, I always do like a pre-start with everyone. So you get everyone in around the table and say, right, you were so-and-so from, say, the painters. This is the guy who's running the plasters, so everyone can communicate. What you find then is they'll speak between themselves, make sure they're aware of what's going on, and then it doesn't eliminate a lot of issues. And that's what I find is always being prepared at the start will save you the embarrassment going forward.
0: Yeah, definitely. That's a great tip, actually, getting everyone around the table at the start. I haven't heard that one before, so yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I, you do find that you can really eliminate a lot. And um, what you'll often find is that, depending on the types of work you're doing, these companies have worked with each other previously, so they all nearly always got a separate relationship, and it just makes life a lot easier. So it's, it can save a lot on you, where they'll be speaking to each other, saying, "Right, we are not going to be finished for three or four days. You know, you, you're going to have to wait," and they'll resolve a lot between them, which makes your life easier.
0: Yeah, definitely just saves a lot of stress on your part, I guess. Definitely, yes. So moving on to your situation now, would you be able to explain for those of us who don't know what it is that you're doing currently?
1: Yeah, so just to give everyone a bit of an overview. So quantity surveyor, there's general tasks which a quantity surveyor will do. So measuring, making sure everything's correct, you know, for on-site drawings and drawings, producing bill of quantities and specifications for work. So what you would kind of do is to make sure that, say, if you're going to build a house, everything's included. So you're not you're sending out prices for it and missing elements off. So that's kind of where the QS will be. They'll make sure that, you know, your groundworks are done, everything, you know, your walls, ceilings. So you're not getting to a point where you think it's going to cost you X amount of, say, £1 million, and it's actually going to cost 1.2. It's your job to make sure that everything stays stays together, really. And depending where you are and what kind of trade you're in, you could be responsible for ordering all the bricks to site, making sure that you're not over-ordering. You could also be making sure that if you're plastering a room, you have enough amount of bags of plaster. It, yeah, depending on where you are as well, you can be estimating. So, as a QS, really, you can cover so many, so many different things. You're also responsible for like a monthly cvr so that's a cost value reconciliation so what you would do there is making sure that every month you are making money as you should be so for example if i project that a job i'm on is going to make 20 percent profit then that we are on that point we're not overspending anyway if you are overspending why have you overspent and how can you recoup some of that money so it's constantly looking like the different aspects with that as well and, yeah, undertaking monthly evaluations to make sure that your money is coming back into the company. So, yeah, and another big thing which uh, QS is responsible for is the contract. So, you might, might or might not know, the, the main two types of contracts would be NEC or JCT. So, JCT is like the standard which is used, and NEC is a bit more civil's background, but also being used a lot more now. So, it's making sure that things are done as per contract. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, definitely. So I guess being having a quantity, quantity surveyor on one of your projects is sort of like a key person in that project because they manage quite a lot, really.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So quantity surveyor would pretty much be responsible for all the commercial aspects. So if you're taking, like, say, a larger scale project, you'd have, say, your site manager who makes sure the trades are in doing what they should be doing quantity surveyor would make sure that they it was priced as per specification and delivered to that and then making sure you make the correct amount of money on these jobs. So, And then again, if something changes, it's making sure you're capturing that change, not just leaving it. So what can often happen is the site team may go and deliver something and then the quantity surveyor didn't really know about it. So it's making sure, say, if they plastered an extra six rooms, you know about this so you can get the money back because all that happens month down the line the subcontractor saying to you well i plastered six extra rooms here i'm all paying for it you might not have captured that from a main contractor point and then you were left out of pocket if you're not not on top of it really
0: yeah definitely so would you advise that people sort of do that side themselves or would you advise them to an expert in on it
1: um it depends really on the type of project you're doing i think if you're doing say a refurbishment of a property you can cover a lot of elements yourself really but it's making sure you know and you're comfortable what you're doing so everyone's heard the example where a builder comes in saying I'm gonna do a full gutter your house for £10,000 and then two weeks into the job he's gone over and then he's saying actually the new cost is £12,000 and now you've got to pay me in a hole so you know I think the biggest thing is your kind of knowledge of what's going on. So once you know what you're doing, you can kind of limit yourself from that. So I, you know, I think a big thing is knowledge of what you're doing.
0: Yeah, definitely. So do you get given the specification of works and then work out the cost from there? Or do you work out yourself what needs doing and then work out the cost? Um,
1: So it, it all depends on the client. So say, for instance, it's you a you a property which we're going to look at. You might say, Well, I only want to do let's trade on the walls or you might say, just paint the walls. So it depends on what the client's outcome is really. If they are really hands on, they say, I want this, I want this certain type of skirt in you don't need to use like say backseat boilers, then, you know, it does dictate more where you are. So yeah, it's all down to the client really. But Again, if they don't do that, then it'd be up to me to specify to say, well, I'm not using this type. I'm not going to use a backseat. I need to use a Worcester boiler instead and then dictate to them what you've actually used.
0: Oh, OK. So it just depends on how hands-on the client is, really.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, I've worked with some who are really to the to the point they want, they know exactly what they want. And you've, I've worked with others who just say, well, look, here's the keys. Get on and get it done, really.
2: Yeah, exactly. So um, moving on to the refurb sides then a bit, what were the first few refurb costings that you did and what were the challenges that you found within them? So
1: with with the refurbs, I'd say I pretty much started up on roofing. So being with the roofing contractor for my first job, I'd be up on the roof. So I had to measure everything and then start from that point. And then probably the biggest thing was say you'd strip the roof off and you need to know every component that's involved with this. So it'd be the felt, batten, underlay, the types of tiles, how many, how much coverage you'd have with the tiles. And you just find that with each project you're doing, you just get a bit more knowledge. Like, don't get me wrong, I have never strip a roof off and relay it, but it's just knowing, having the knowledge to, to do it. So, And then that's what I found is the started off, the first job I went to, you look at a roof and you wouldn't know the difference between the eaves or the verge but then you know picking up these terminologies what you're doing and it's just as you grow with it it gets further and further then so when i was working for another main contractor we'd done a lot of work on cardiff council working on their void schemes or different schemes for them and then that's pretty much it builds from there then so for instance on a void scheme someone's lived in there for probably five six years left the property and it's within a place now where you need to get it back up so the council can rent it out to make income on there so then you're going into these properties and then you've got to understand every item that needs to do in there and then working out the prices for that but it's the kind of thing it's only with time you'll realize and learn what's actually needed and then that's where things have got easier i found that your knowledge will build over time it just takes you know a few visits and biggest things asking questions if you're with someone who understands these things it does get easier and easier every time
2: yeah exactly yeah so would you say that you learn most of your learning whilst actually doing the job then
1: yes definitely um i enjoyed my time in college and university but that's only ever a base i think from any kind of any kind of platform whether you're going into property development or site management when you get out on site you actually see see hands-on what needs doing and you think it kind of registers a bit more or it does with myself that you know you walk into a room now and then you wouldn't really necessarily know how to plaster that wall but once you've seen someone putting a mix together laying it on how they do everything then you kind of get a bit more of an understanding you know and then it's from there it kind of builds up and you know your knowledge will get better in time then and you know it's being in these properties and then notice and see where damp would come in, where cracks could be, possibly. And then, you know, you can read
0: about it, but when you're actually hands-on, that's when you learn. Yeah, definitely. So would you say yeah. that, would you advise someone to maybe get some work experience or do a few days shadowing someone drawing a refo project just to get that yeah. initial experience?
1: Yeah. yeah, definitely. And if you look at Instagram, you only ever see the glitz and glamour that someone's doing. So I've done I've done surveys for people and gone into the property and you can highlight straight away what it is and you think, well, you've got this issue, that issue to deal with. But then when they're posting on social media, you'll only ever see the glory stuff. You'll see that kitchen going at the end. You haven't seen necessarily where they've ripped kitchens off and seen damp or, you know, ripped wallpaper off and seen a massive crack which oh. they had to sort out and then it's making sure that, you know, they. then it's kind of learning from these mistakes as well for them. But they'll never quite glorify what they've done or where they've had issues. You only ever find on social media, they'll say, you know, they'll say how well they've done something.
0: Yeah, definitely. I guess it's the sort of thing that you only learn once you actually get out there and do it yourself.
1: Yeah, definitely. But I'd say... If you're interested in learning, speak to someone. If you know someone doing a refurb local, just ask them, look, can I come along shadow you for the day? Most people won't mind because if they're starting out, they might have stuff which you could probably teach them and vice versa. You know, you could pick up items off them,
0: really. I find with the surveys, the more you do, the more you'll actually learn as well. Yeah, definitely. So moving on to the sort of estimating the refurb costs. When you're on Right Move, or someone sends you pictures of a property that they have how do you go about estimating the costs that the refurb will be just from the pictures
1: this is really where it gets tricky um there's been a number of times i've been on zoopla for instance looked at a house and thought wow this house is going to make i could buy this at say the 60 grand mark spend 10 on it and make 30 to 40 grand easily then you get into the house and then the images I always find are never quite what they see, so an estate agent could go into that property, realize there's a crack or something they don't want you to see, stand in that position and take the photo the opposite way, so you never quite you only see what they want you to see to sell the house, and then I find that you can never truly price anything off off just photos. You you can get an idea of what's happened, but for instance, if the felt had blown on the first stretch of felt, this um quite common where water's running off a roof that the felt can perish there which can lead to water ingress it's maybe not something you'd see until you actually go up and look in the loft and see right you can see a hole in the felt you've got sunshine coming through you're never going to see that on a photo and for instance it's going in there you could look round and then feel a wall and it feels damp you're thinking well you're never going to know that but the person selling the house has recently painted it so they've kind of masked the issue to get rid of it it's not until you get out there notice these things you know first hand for instance if there's like any kind of mold around a window you're not going to see that until you actually go there because the photo's taken from the other point of the room same for like boilers electrics you never know how what kind of state they're in until you're there
0: yeah definitely i guess it's just sort of you can't really know until you actually get out there and view it first hand
1: no, no. You can look at it and think, well, I believe this is going to cost X amount. And I've done that on numerous occasions. So you use the base image to think, well, we could keep this, refit this, but then that's your starting point. I, You could never fully go for it without getting out to see the property.
0: Yeah. So going back to what you said, you talked about boilers and the electrics. Yeah. How do you usually establish whether they need any work or not?
1: Um for me any jobs that i've done on my my own personal jobs i've taken someone who's a, an electrician or a plumber really it's one of them things that to the naked eye you if you look at a boiler and it looks nice and shiny you think well yeah that's that's great they must be working but until you actually get a specialist you don't know i don't know the components of it and i've always said i never came to be a, an m&e specialist so i'd always get someone out with me who understands that you can kind of get a feel for it by looking at like a fuse board to see you know how old it is but then but like with a boiler you know you you never really know it could be two years old and failed or it could be you know 15 years old and working like a dream
0: yeah definitely so do you do you advise getting a specialist out there to come and look at it properly
1: i i always would say if you're going to, to refurb a property you could always allow the contingency to say well With myself, I always allow the contingency to say, change the boiler, new rewire. So I always allow, say, that kind of money there, so at least I know that's always covered. Because anything secondhand, you never quite know with them them items. They could be working fine when you get into the property. Six months of having the heating off, and then it's a new game, really, isn't it?
0: Yeah. So do you always have that contingency to replace them, then?
1: Yeah, I I always would. and depending on on the type of property you know and how old the boiler is it could just be changing the boiler which isn't that much in the grand scheme of things but then if the radiators are old as well you know it might be worth changing them so it's just yeah just knowing your kind of costs on it to to cover it i think if you spoke to any any plumber or local electrician they'll give you a ballpark so at least you know you're covered going into these houses
0: yeah so do you find that you there's often a Big difference between the figure you estimate from the pictures and then the figure you estimate once you've viewed the property. I
1: I would say so. Yes, I'd say from the pictures you can never quite get a full grasp of what's there, and I I've always found that it's, I've been to a house for an investor previously, and seen the photos. I thought, wow, this house is steel is probably twenty grand under asking price got there and the house was wonky. the house basically had subsidence so we were walking through it and you could basically feel the slant on every room and when i found out it'd been underpinning 15 years previously and then the underpinning looks like it's failed because it's built on a mine shaft and would need to be redone so you know you could look at the pictures and think wow this is fine but it's not until you're in there it was at the point that we'd open a door and the door would shut straight after it because it was on that much of a slant
0: So it's not until you're actually there that you pick these things up. Yeah, definitely. So you said about subsidence. Yeah. What actually is subsidence? So subsidence is
1: where the building can be moving. So for instance, with this property, it was built over a mine shaft years and years ago where the mines were there, now they've closed. That can be sinking. So what ends up happening then? is the building is starting to move downwards and is causing cracks. But pretty much from that point the house is hitting a, a stage where it needs some kind of remedial works to strengthen it. And you normally find this in properties which are, you know, over a hundred years old. They don't have foundations, so there's nothing actually holding the house together. Or it could even be it's got foundation. The subsidence is that bad. It's causing the full side of the building to move. And then it's causing cracks on the building. You can be in rooms and notice that it's not straight, not level. And, yeah, it can just cause massive issues. It's it's one of them ones that I know an investor who targets properties because like, he knows he's got the right structural team who can come in, do the work straight away. And then I've noticed people who've gone in and tried to buy these houses without a real understanding of what they're doing. So, you know, for me, if you ever oh. think there's an issue with something like that, speak to a structural engineer they'll give you advice straight away they can do your report and it could be the difference between saving you you know paying 500 pounds out on this report to save you up to 15 pounds on a underpinning a job
0: yeah so it's definitely one of those things that if you do see you need to yeah get on yeah. it straight away yeah, definitely and really if
1: you met a structural a structural specialist I imagine most would be happy to take you out to go and see these properties as well, and you could learn so much off them. Just and often you see cracks in buildings or say where a house feels like it's subsiding, they can identify what the issue is straight away. So not always will a house be feeling like it's moved and you know seems wonky. It might be perfectly fine and it's been like that for a number of years, but until you've got the specialist with you to identify it they're the ones who can really, really assist you and save you a lot of money.
2: Yeah, definitely. It's always a good thing to uh, have. So um, just going quickly back to the pictures and actually going to view the property. um, When you go to view the property, do you go around with a checklist and look for things that that need to be there or do you just go around there and see what needs to be done?
1: Yes, to be honest, I've I don't actually carry a physical checklist now. I used to when I was starting out, but it's just become kind of routine to myself. So I always start out, I'll view all the external of the property first to see if there's any kind of issues which I can find from the outside first. So whether I believe there's issues with windows, any kind of rendering issues and stuff like that. And then what I find is we check outside, go inside, do your survey and then go back outside if you've got an issue you can normally pinpoint exactly where it is so you know if you've got dam coming into a property say in an upstairs bedroom you can check the guttering again to see if there's any kind of issues there so yeah it's that's what i'll always do get into the property and i always like to start either from the ground up or the roof down just to make sure that everything's covered it's not going into a living room going upstairs coming back down if you do it like logically then it'll be fine from there what I always tend to do is if I go to a property, which I'm, say, surveying, I'll do a measure of each room and then also take a photo of each elevation. So you look at a wall, take a photo of it, same again for the ceiling. At least then, because what can often happen, you go to a property, you come home and you think, oh, I've forgotten what, about this part or that part. The obvious things do stay with you, but then you forget certain items. So it's only once you've kind of done another walk around and, you know, go back through it all in your head, upload the photos to, like, a server, then you can see exactly, you know, it just gives you a refresh, really.
2: Yeah, exactly. So I guess it's good to document everything that you've seen and stuff, so you don't forget. So um, when you are viewing the properties, what are some of the main things that people may miss out when they are estimating refurb costs?
1: What I've kind of noticed from people who I know who have done it... Um, waste is a big thing which people never seem to estimate so when you think you look at a house now say no furniture in there people don't tend to take into consideration the floor coming up hacking off walls stuff like that general bits and pieces which will need to go into a skip and be disposed of and i find that's often caught people out for you know three four hundred quid and then it's getting the skip filled and items like that you know even getting old carpets up it does it does add up in the end you know, unless you've got a van and take it to a local recycling centre, you know, these kind of things can cost you in the long run. Um another thing which I've noticed missed on a few occasions is asbestos. So it's years and years ago it was like installed in pretty much numerous houses. It was used for everything, so is asbestos roofs which I've seen on is asbestos tiles you can get. I've seen it like pretty much everywhere. It used to be they'd spray foam you know, if they would insulate in certain areas. And due to the nature of asbestos, you would need a specialist company to come in and remove the stuff. So asbestos could be in Artex and the like. So if you're removing ceilings, you need to get a specialist company. in. these are little items which I see, which not everyone allows for. And then that could be really costly. Or even worse, you could get someone who doesn't know it's asbestos ripping it out and then, you know, giving themselves harm by doing that. Uh, what else have we got roofing i find is a another one which can often often be missed so if you think about it you look at the outside of a house the roof looks great but that roof could have been up for 30 40 years you don't know what kind of you know extensive damage it is the felt might be perishing in parts you might get you know issues with the guttering some old properties don't have soffits on so the guttering is actually fixed to the the back wall of the house And then what you'll get then is water can start ingressing down the back of that and causing damp into the property. And it's all these little things which can just add up a a lot of cost really. Um, And again, like we said earlier, boilers and electrics, that's the kind of thing which as myself, I'm not an expert in it and most people are not. Well, you look at a boiler and think it's okay, but then that could cost you X amount then by needing to get that replaced by not having a contingency for it.
0: Yeah, definitely. So I guess it's just extra sort of rigorous when you're going for a property and sure yeah. that you are missing out any little yeah, things
1: definitely and what i'd always advise is any property you go and see always try and get there twice so if you can get there say one week and it's a great glorious day if say so, you could go and see it again towards the end of the week to take a second look just say to the estate agent look a few more things i'd like to check you and it happens to be raining and that's the perfect time to get in there because you can see two different houses you can see one house which is completely different whether it's raining or whether it's sunny so you know a nice warm summer's day you go and see a property and it looks all oh, this everything's fantastic here you go and see it on the friday then it's hammering out you can see water ingressing through through windows you know you can see damp patches occurring you can just you can pick up a lot more the gutters leaking stuff like that it's something you could only see on one visit you go
0: another time and it's completely different yeah definitely so would you say that viewing properties in the rain is actually the best way to pick up any issues?
1: I probably would say so, yes. I'd say when it's a sunny day, you're not going to see something you. Or when it's a dry day, them damp patches might have dried out, depending on the time of year. If you go when it's raining, you kind of everything's exposed, really. And especially these kind of months now, the weather we've had, if it's going to put any kind of pressure on a building with the amount of water and rainfall, then it's going to be now. So you might see water progressing in the spot. You think, well, it shouldn't necessarily progress from there. But it could be coming from another point, like, say, if the the rendering's blown or something like that. And it does, it seems to show everything up in its worst features when it's raining. Yeah,
0: definitely. So that's a good little tip there. So um, in terms of, obviously, you spoke about subsidence and cracks in the wall what would you advise somebody to do if they did obviously we said get a structural engineering but if there is any other advice about cracks in the wall what would your advice be
1: yeah when it when it comes to cracks there's a number of different things it could be so with with cracking it could be say you've recently had the room replastered it could be drying out and causing like hairline cracks there which are nothing to worry about then you could also get, like, a horizontal crack or, you know, a diagonal crack or even a lateral crack. And they can all mean different things. So if it was horizontal, it could be due to subsidence. And what's happening, the corner of the building may be moving in one direction and then it'll always take it through its weakest points. So where you've got, like, an opening for a window, the crack will always go from one corner leading up into that. But, again, it's, you know, you can see a crack which could have been there for, numerous years and there's nothing wrong with a property you know until you've actually got a specialist out it's going to save you save you thousands really
0: yeah definitely so I guess it's just about making sure you get that specialist knowledge in.
1: yeah definitely and then what, what you'll find is once you've seen so many cracks you can start to get a feel for what you believe it to be as well so you'll know if it's serious if it's nothing to worry about and you always want that second opinion, but the more you see, the more you
0: kind of be able to judge it as well. So obviously this is quite a sort of vague question to answer because it depends, but would you be able to give us a brief sort of breakdown of different types of typical sort of refurbs that you've seen and what goes into them in terms of costs and works? Yeah, yeah.
1: So um, the main, starting from like the least... First, I'd say just a cosmetic refurb. So, you find a property, you go into it. Everything looks okay. It might just need, say, few walls replastered, you know, a bit of redecoration, new carpets. Basically, you just put it into like a cosmetic finish to pass on to the next client. So, say if the kitchen was fine, bathroom was fine, it could cost you probably one to three thousand pounds, which will save you, you know, be a nice easy job really then I'd say you get the next type then, which is just an upgrade. So, you know, you could, it could basically not have been lived in for 20 years. And then you're going in thinking, right, we need to do a bit of an upgrade, probably new kitchen, bathroom, which would be, say, basically taking it to like a standard, you know, how it should be today rather than what it was like 20 years ago where they haven't decorated. So bringing it back up to life and that could probably cost you up to say 10,000 pound and then the major works then where you could go to a property and the boiler doesn't work it needs new new rewire all the rooms need say stripping back and then re you know redoing that could cost you 30 grand what i've always noticed is that my own personal view is with any kind of property on refurb you do the most important things which I find is the kitchen and bathroom so it's making sure that they are at the standard, which the next potential buyer would want. So, you know, you may go to a house where the kitchen is okay and a few cosmetic changes. Spending a little bit more on a kitchen, which you think a potential buyer might go and pay a little bit more for, I find always works works wonders as well, really. Same with the bathroom. I find kitchen and bathroom are the main two biggest selling points in a house. So, you know, that they're the kind of things which people will go in and say, well, I really like that, I can Im- I can imagine myself living in this house I can imagine myself living here feeding the kids, you know, this is a base where I'd want to be, and I always seem to find it's a kitchen and bathroom which are the two biggest sellers for getting that
0: Yeah, 100% a lot of people say that the kitchen and bathroom are the two things that make a house Yeah
2: Yeah. So um, when it comes to uh, touching up on that, when it comes to cost and up say the whole property was fine but maybe the kitchen was a bit dated what would you say the average cost of a kitchen would be in like a three bed terrace it again
1: it depends where you go and what kind of suppliers you go to really um for me i've the particular brands which i know i wouldn't touch and there's some who are like the the high level brands who call themselves like the master the master class and the kind of kitchens which you want you know you'd want for like the better the more how would you say it? like say the, the you know the better properties what I always find is that if you put a little bit of money into the kitchen and go to like say your run-of-the-mill average you know kind of kitchen kitchen um, supplier you can get a really good kitchen out of that and I've noticed it where say the worktop's people are going for like say marble granite effect you can get a very good kitchen worktop similar but you're not paying the full price for it as well for like a similar prop uh, product and that'll you know add so much value to your property
2: all oh, right yeah it's just doing the uh, due diligence on different companies to compare yeah. the prices then i suppose
1: definitely yeah. and i'd say with that if you've got an install team speak to them as well because for instance someone may have like a really good deal with you know say howden's kitchens and they could say well you know we can save you x amount with them or you know people like um who else is there have companies like wren kitchens for example who have say you know a product which they might be able to get you a better deal with by selling more of them really so it's always worth it to speak to them because they might be able to save you money by going with a specific supplier you know and then they know what they fit in as well with that. So they could probably save you some money on it. And, you know, the time element will speed it up as well.
2: Yeah, yeah, most definitely. So um, moving on a bit to when you're actually in the refurb stage, what are some of the most common unforeseen issues that occur and how do you go about, like, dealing with them?
1: Common unforeseens, I've often seen it where you go into, like, say, a house which looks pretty decent, you know, wall has been wallpapered you strip that wallpaper off and half the plaster comes off with it again it's not something you can really allow for but it's always good to have a bit of a contingency backed up so I'd say any kind of project you do, and you need to have a contingency in there whether it's you know 10% of your overall spend or or what or you know just a lump sum so I'd always I'd always recommend having that just to cover these kind of things but yeah, it depends where you are. I've seen it previously. You strip a kitchen out, and then you, the back of the kitchen needs all tanking work because there's been mould coming in and then water ingress, and it's getting these sorted. You know, it could be one of the waste pipes leading from the kitchen has been leaking for so long, and it's not necessarily something which you'd pick up. You know, until the kitchens run in and you actually see it. So yeah, I'd always say you need like a nice little contingency in in with it. And what I always say is whenever you're doing a property, it's having it kind of set out that you've got saying, if everything goes to plan, we're gonna make X amount. If there's any little hiccups here, this is what we'll spend. And then worst case scenario, losing all the contingency at that point. So you've got kind of three stages. So if you were going outside to buy a property, always think worst case, if this all went bad, we could make 10 grand on it. But if it goes good, we can make 25. At least then, that kind of contingency will always help you, you know, so you know worst case we are still
0: happy with what we made, but best case we're laughing. Yeah, definitely. So in terms of um contingencies, what sort of contingency do you usually use or does it depend on the project?
1: Yeah, again it it depends on a project. Um normally it's a percentage which I which I'll allow. But if, say, for instance, I'm going in to, say, to a house refurb, but we keep in the kitchen, keeping the bathroom, then I'll allow always a little bit more. But if we're going in to strip it out, it doesn't need to be as much because you're taking things back to the bare bones. It's when you're kind of keeping things and trying to not not spend out as much. For instance, if you're going in and thinking the boiler's going to be fine here, then it's allowing to for something to go wrong or needing to change two or three radiators and a bit of pipe work. Always just making sure you're covered on it, really. Because the problem is, as you know, you can go and see a property and think, yeah, this is fine, I'm happy with this. The builder goes in there the next day and says, well, that radiator's leaking, that sees that we need to change this, and then the last thing you want to be doing is losing money then.
0: Yeah, definitely. So it's just about planning ahead, really, and making sure you're not scrimping to the bare bones.
1: Yeah, definitely,
0: yes. So... You said about project management. Do you do that regularly? And if so, how do you go about budgeting for the sort of build teams to come in? Do you break it down into the labour side and the material side?
1: So with my own properties that I do and um, when I'm buying and basically flipping properties, I'll manage all the build teams on that. I'm happy to do that. What I always do is I'll... Basically, I sub out the work, as I call it, same as I do in work. So if I know a local decorator or trades that I use, I'll go to them and say, right, this is your element of work. This is what you are doing. I don't tend to split out labor materials. I know roughly what the prices should be for, you know, say a bag of plaster and how much it costs to do the work to make sure it's all all there. And then I basically just sub it out to them as a package. I've always found that the best way is when you're subbing it is to make sure you're tied into a proper contract with them. So, for instance, say if a company was doing work for me now and they they were coming in to basically do a new kitchen and bathroom for me, I'd sign them up to, like, a JCT contract to make sure they, they're tied in. Contract then can cover, say, specification, programs. Say if I need to have the property ready for a certain point, being, like, student accommodation, I can say, right... You've got until this date. If you go over this date and it's your fault, I'll be charging you X amount, which I'd lose in rental. So to make sure that you're there with them. Also agreeing stuff such as payment terms as well then. So everyone knows where they are at the start. It's the same as we discussed earlier. It's making sure that everyone's on the same page from day one. So, and I always find a contract with some builders, they get scared as soon as you mention a contract because they think you were tying them up. But, a good contract will also secure them so that you can't mess them about you know I've been on both sides of the barrel really where I've been asking people to do work for me and also the person being asked to do work and you know for instance if you were someone doing the work and I go to them and say so they say to me we need you to do this and start we need you to do this to start but then we're going to turn around and say well actually I want you to do this as an extra That's an extra you can kind of say to them, well, no, that's not within my works. And you often find they can get carried away with what they're doing and say, well, I want you to do this as an extra because you're not tied into a contract. The contract basically supports helps both the client and the person doing the works.
0: Yeah, definitely. So would you advise that people get a contract drawn up properly or would you advise them to do it themselves? As a QS, I'd always advise to have it done properly. However, I do
1: know that someone can take, say, a copy of a JCT contract and basically follow them guidelines to get something drawn up. And really, if you're doing, say, a refurb for a house which is ten thousand pound, I'd never go down the route to saying, like, right, get this off to a solicitor, get this drawn up correctly, because you're outlaying money you don't necessarily need to. But I'd say if you had, say, you know, a standard JCT 2016 and then worked it between you to make sure you're all on the same page, you've kind of got something binding between you as well. So, you know, if it was me personally, I wouldn't go and have a contract drawn up if I had someone coming in to do £10,000 worth of work. But then I'd have it done, say, to my own standard, but I wouldn't be giving it to a solicitor to do everything to it, really.
0: Yeah, so I guess it depends on the sort of scale of the project, really. Yeah, definitely, yes. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's just
1: protecting yourself so at least you know if you've got someone in to do a job for you and they're not doing it right or you know they they haven't hit their targets then you know you can still take the necessary actions through the contract and you're protecting yourself. Same for them. If you've got a contract with them and they you don't pay them, they can say, Well hang on now I've done this work, I've got a contract so they can net get the money back off you. So you know, I'd say a contract would
0: benefit both parties. Yeah, definitely. So with the overall refurb cost, when you're estimating that, do you sort of, is that, in terms of the materials and the labour put together? Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. I to be honest, I've, I've always gone to the point
1: that if I'm getting someone in, I'll always ask him to provide all the raw materials because what can happen, and I've seen it on many different sites. So, again, go back to the plaster. You've said, told them you're going to provide him with ten bags of plaster. He comes in, he puts the mix on and then he ends up needing an extra five bags. Well, whereas he would be at for fly. You only give you didn't give him enough material now. So he's ends up on stop. And then he's saying to you, Well, I need paying for the next three to four hours because I can't I'm not productive. And then you've got to run out to get more material for him. Come back. In the end then it's cost you more because you've had to you didn't give him enough material to start you put him on stop and then you've had to waste your time going out to get him more stuff or him going to get it which he's then on day with being paid £25 an hour and not necessarily in a rush to go and get these kind of items so I always find that if you can get the onus on them you're putting the pressure on them really so they can't say to you oh I've forgotten this or I've forgotten that they've got to get on with what they've got to do really
0: yeah so do they sort of when you get them to source the materials themselves, do they go and get it all and then just sort of send you an invoice with the costs?
1: Yeah, so yeah, depending on the kind of agreement you've got with them, you could have an agreement where they pay you say, you give them 30% upfront say to cover their material cost and then the rest of the cost then is their labor element which you pay at 14 or 28 days after month end or depending on what agreement you got. Or sometimes they'll just say, well, materials didn't cost me much, and it's all agreed in your contract. Month end, I'll invoice you, and then we'll get paid in the in the time frame agreed, which it just saves a lot of hassle as well. Then, I can I've had instances where there's specialists like them, so a light fitting, which a client will want fitted, and that's a little bit different. Then, so yeah, you take fit for labour only rate, but the general items, I'd always
0: say, just ask them to be supply and fit really. Yeah, cause I guess with materials the builders will probably be able to get better prices than you could anyway
1: yeah and what can also happen as well which I'm not saying it does but say you had a building in and he told you he needs 50 bags of plaster for this wall well if you're not quite experienced enough you go and buy him 50 bags of plaster which costs you X amount he uses 10 of them fit doing the, the install and then walks away with 40 extra bags you don't know about. Because you're not standing watching him all the way through. You're just giving that guy another 40 bags where he can go and do his own project. So that's what I find. If you take that kind of element to them, they could have an apprentice working on this job, trying, trying, you know, trying it for the first time, and wasting bag after bag. Well, you're putting that risk onto them all the time then, really,
0: isn't it? Yeah, definitely. So if that does happen, and they are um, paying for the materials themselves, do they could they still sort of charge that to you?
1: Um, Not really. I'd say the only way they can is say if um someone came in, plastered a wall for me, and then my carpenter came in and put 10 doors up against that and ruined it. Then he could say, well, look, I finished this. Someone's come in, messed my wall up. Then, you know, I'm expecting another payment for this. And that's when it can get tricky. Then that you were saying to the carpenter, well, you made this mess. You owe, you owe him the money and all the life with that, really, but yeah, they can't really say to you, you know, we expect it to be this much, and now it's this because they've given you a lump sum price to do the work, really, haven't they? So they've said to you, I can get this wall done for a hundred pounds. If it ends up costing two or three hundred pounds because they take longer doing it, well, that's the risk. It's all about making yourself risk adverse. So any way you can is basically protecting yourself
0: on on all these jobs. Yeah, I guess these are the sort of things that you'd put in the contract to make sure you're protected.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And yeah, again, then, if you specify something oh. they're using the specified materials. So if you said to them, I want the wall painting, they're not coming in and painting it in anything they bought for five quid on eBay, really. Yeah, definitely.
2: So um, moving on a bit to the numbers side of building, if people wanted to... I don't know, save a bit of money and get a better return, would you advise them to do some of the work themselves? Um, I've done a
1: post on social media recently about this, and it's one of the things which I'll always remember from being in university, and it's basically a triangle with time, cost, and quality. So with this, you're only ever going to achieve two. So for instance, if you were looking to move into a property now and you thought, right, I'm going to do this myself so say the painting you can get it done which you're going to save on the cost but the quality isn't going to be as good and it's probably going to take you twice as long as a painter so you've always got to weigh up what you think is best whether you want a quality finish you know a cost or quality finish cost or the time so you're only ever going to get two of the pictures so for instance if you ask someone in now as a painter who is the cheapest guy you'll do it quickly the quality is not going to be there so you've had the best cost, you've had the best time but the quality wasn't right and it's vice versa with that so if you need it done in a quick time again it's going to cost you double the amount because this guy is going to say well right I gonna get this done in the night charge him an extra hundred pound so you know you could get that but then you're costing yourself somewhere else so it's always that balancing act of what you're going to pick so in a perfect world you will you'll get somewhere near all three but more than likely you end up sacrificing one to get the two. So, for instance, like you said, if you do the work yourself, you are saving money, but you think the time you could end up spending doing something, that could end up costing you more than what the value is of just paying out for this. So, say you had a property you wanted to rent, that could cost you an extra two weeks of the program, which is two weeks rent. And that's something else to consider as well.
2: I guess it also depends on like the relativeness of... property size so if it's like a small deal then you're most likely going to do some stuff yourself whereas if it's like a multi-million pound then you're obviously going to employ someone else to do it
1: yeah definitely and i've been there myself on properties i've done i've done all say the strip work so it's nothing technical i can go in there do what i need to do strip it all back get the waste into a skip and move on and that's fine but then you know you get to the point there where you're thinking well okay i spent two weeks on that and I couldn't really concentrate on doing anything else. I could have got a labourer in, £40 a day, and asked him to do the same. And, okay, the time, my time, we could class as valuable. The stuff I could be doing, helping out the rest of the project, which I've lost there. So it's always a juggling act. Like I'd say starting off, you need to do some work yourself because it does save you a lot of, of costs. But you just need to be considerate of the time element with that.
0: Yeah, definitely. I guess it's just about balance weighing them up and making sure you have the right balance yeah definitely
2: final question then before we end the interview um if you could go back to your younger self what three tips would you give yourself
1: um number one i'd probably say never be afraid to ask questions starting off in university i didn't know much about construction so i'd always be a bit more quiet and the like and sometimes you can kind of fade into the background and just sit there and not quite say something which you're not sure on if you ask a question on it more than likely someone will always be happy to answer say yes you know try this try that you two for instance you pretty much come on the scene asked everyone any questions you know it's not always trying to be the expert it's trying to make yourself become an expert by asking questions and ask something i find you know you get a lot more admiration for coming out and saying i don't know much about this can you help me than just acting like you know about it when you don't fully know what you're doing. So I think, you know, as with you guys, you've come out and been honest. You, you know, it does help, you know, as if to say, yeah, I'm not not claiming to be anything. But um, second one, I'd say probably taking the time to learn a process as well. So, you know, like I said, when I first went up to a roof and done my first survey, leaving there, I was thinking, well, I know that now, but it's knowing the full process or knowing that how the tiles felt, batten, underlay, facious off get the way the eaves are, why there's lead, just learning the full process of something. So it's not necessarily saying that I can do it now or go and fit the roof, but understanding about it. And I think that's that's massive. Really. You just learn so much more. And then it kinda helps you when you're doing your own projects as well then. So for instance, you know, if you know how to plaster the wall, you can't necessarily plaster it, but you know how the bags and the mix and everything work. So painting you know even with like glossing stuff like that knowing how it's done you don't have to do it but at least you know you know about doing under and everything else it's just the little techniques then that i don't know, make you a little bit more more knowledgeable when you're moving forward yeah i'd say probably the last one and the biggest one is don't be afraid to fail with anything in life i think failing is only a failure if you don't learn from it so you know i think that if you something happens to you so say you do a property and you wanted to make 20,000, be only 5,000, it's going back and then having the lessons learned. So how did we only make this much from that job? What went wrong? Well, it could be for instance, that we thought the boiler was okay and it wasn't. So we've lost 3,000 pounds there or you've lost money here. Well, next time we're gonna make sure why it happened. And it's again, back to asking questions. If you went in and thought the boiler was okay and then the plumber said to you, this is where it's seized. He'll tell you what the issues are so the next one you go into you can see it straight away you know right that's not happening to me again but it's learning from it you know it's only a failure if you don't learn as myself as a qs there's been jobs where i've lost thousands of pounds you know but it's for me i can always go and do another job and try and make that money back it's always about learning from it it's only going to be an issue if i lose ten thousand pounds on a package and then i lose it on the next one again and the next one well I'm not learning then, it's all about just deciding what was a failure and how would, you, how would you stop it happening again and the same like working for companies which have failed, is trying to use their issues to make my situations better and you know as the old saying you either win or learn,
0: you don't never lose, you win or learn. Yeah 100% there's some really great tips there. So finally is there any sort of special mentions that you want to give to anyone? yeah to be honest i'd say
1: there's been a number of people who've helped me over the years and i'd say yeah the, going to university i was a big thing i'd say probably the thing that got me into it the most was college going to college it was great it was two days a week for two years but you learn so much in that time as well from going there and just understanding of people who've been there you know there's so many people there's a Person I used to work with Gerald Davis, who was a decorator. He recently retired and he was one guy who'd always be happy to show you how to do something so you know there's so many people out there, but again, when you ask these questions, that's how you learn that's how you manage to take a step forward so you know I'd say there's endless possibilities for learning out there, and there's people who've got me to where I am today, and yeah, you know, just extremely grateful for that,
0: yeah, definitely are. I- I think especially in property, there's always someone that, well, there's loads of people that are willing to sort of take the time to answer your questions.
1: Yeah, definitely, yeah. Yeah, and like I said, if anyone's got any questions for me direct, I'm at Signature Wales on Instagram, give me a shout out and, you know, I'm always happy to help. This stuff which I've learned, which, you know, I'm always happy to give experiences. I'm quite open and honest. If I've lost money on something, I'm happy to say, well... I lost on this to make sure someone else doesn't. You know, we're all, all in the same kind of game together to, to keep moving forward. Yeah,
0: definitely. We'll make sure to link your Instagram in the show notes so people can find you. Oh,
1: that's perfect.
0: Well, on that note, we'd like to thank you for coming on, Matt. It's been a pleasure to interview. Your knowledge has been great to listen to. So thank you very much for coming on.
1: Yeah, cheers, both, and we'll uh, catch up soon.
0: So on that note, guys. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. It's been great to talk to Matt today about his knowledge. Really good listening. So yeah, hope you guys enjoyed and make sure to leave us a review wherever you're listening and we'll see you next week. Thanks guys.